this morning. Matthew chapter 26. So guys, every week that we go through the book of Matthew, we've been doing this for a few years now. Um, it's always urgent. This is the word of God. It's always important. And I'm certainly not pitting scripture against scripture. But guys, this morning, verses 36 to 46... Uh, is especially holy ground that we're going to be in. This is big stuff. We're getting ready to read. The scene is, it's this time of the year, 2,000 years ago. It's in Jerusalem. All the Jews, most all of them, by the hundreds of thousands, have made their way into the city for Passover. The Lord and his disciples, just a couple hours before this, had observed... The Passover meal and Jesus transformed that into the Last Supper and now what we call communion, the Lord's Supper. So he had transformed that. And then last week's message we noted, if you just want to glance, in a moment we'll read verses 36. But notice verse 31. Again, I'm not going to read it all, but Jesus predicts to his disciples. They've now left Jerusalem and they've headed east and they're about three-quarter of a mile away from the city. If it were daylight, they could still see the city and probably saw some lights up there. But the Lord lets them know over on the Mount of Olives as they're, they're meeting and gathering. He tells the 11, Judas is off doing what he's going to do, betraying the Lord. But he lets the 11 know, all of you this night will fall away. You're all going to fall away because of me. And Peter heard that. And I don't think, as I said last week, I don't think Peter heard the rest of what the Lord said. Jesus says, but when I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So he predicts that as well. You're all going to fall away, and that's going to happen. Well, Peter heard fall away, and he apparently thinks his loyalty has been questioned. So he fires back, verse number 33. You have your Bible open there. Peter answered, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. I will never, in his mind, I will never do that. Verse 34, Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, talking to Peter alone, this very night. So he's going to tell him, Peter, you're not only going to fall away like the other ten, you're going to do more than that. This very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me. You're not just going to fall away and run. You're going to actually use your mouth to deny knowing me three times. Not once, three times. Peter's not buying it. He doesn't believe it. He says in verse 35, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So that's our context as we now move to verse number 36. Let's jump right into the text. I don't think we need any more introduction than that. They're on the Mount of Olives. Verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place. John's gospel in particular calls this place a garden. Then Jesus went with them, the eleven, to a place called Gethsemane. The best we can tell, the word Gethsemane has to do with an olive press, where they would take the olives and they would press them and they would get oil and they would be able to use that for many things in their society. And he said, so they're in this garden called Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, three-quarter of a mile away from the city. And Jesus said to his disciples, the eleven, watch, here we go, sit here while I go over there and pray. You sit here while I, I'm going over there. I've got to pray. You sit here. But verse 37, taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, we know that's James and John. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So he takes them with him. Now eight are left sitting. Three are with the Lord going further 
Verse 38. Then he said to them, this is he's talking to Peter, James, and John, not all the eleven. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, the three, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Hear that. My soul, he's telling these three, guys, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Guys, I I want you to stay awake. I want you to be alert. I want you to be with me. I've got to go over there further, but you here, I want you to be with me this night. It's getting heavy. It's getting thick, verse 39. And going on a little farther. So you have the eight and you have the three. Now Jesus goes on a little farther. In fact, Luke tells us it's about a stone's throw. It's about how far you could throw a stone. I know we could do different things. I'm going to just round that off to an average. Let's say he's going to go 50, 60, 70 yards further than Peter, James, and John. Now verse 39. 39 is the key verse probably to the whole text. And going a little farther, he fell on his face. Notice, he fell. He knelt, yes, but I mean, he's, he's about to die. Jesus is about to die right here in the garden. We don't usually think of it that. That's, that's what's going on. Going a little further, he fell on his face. He's on his face and prayed, saying, he always prays my father. Or he always prays father. This time he prays my father. He says, my father, if it be possible, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He knows there's this cup that he has to drink. It's why he's come. But now that it's here, he's asking, can this cup just go right on by me and I not have to drink it? Look at verse 39 again. My father, if it be possible, here's the request. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples. So he left them. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping. Apparently, this is the three. They're sleeping. Peter and James and John have fallen asleep in the time the Lord went away. And he said to Peter, did you catch what we just read in verses 33 and 35? Remember Peter? Out with these bold statements, talking too much, talking too quickly, way too much self-confidence. They may, I never will. I will die for you. Now here we are in verse 40. He said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? You would die for me? You'll never deny me? You would die for me? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray. The idea of watch, stay alert. Be awake. Be aware of what's going on. Do you guys not get it? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And a great principle that is true of all of us, the Lord says, the spirit, he's talking to Peter, the spirit indeed is willing. That's not the problem. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. There's a slight difference, and I think it's telling this second request. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. I mean, you see, you see it, I mean, like, it's like anesthesia. It's like they're just 
the Lord's trying to wake them up. Oh, sorry, Lord, we do stuff. I don't know what's the matter with us tonight. Yes, it's been a long week. It's been a long day. It's late at night. They've just had a big full belly, lots of food. You have to eat all the lamb. So that, that's true. All this is going on. I think there's more going on, though. Notice their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again, apparently referring back to verse 42. So let's go back there. Third time, my father, if this cannot pass away, this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Now verse 45. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He can see the torches. He can see Judas is coming. He knows exactly. They've been asleep. He's been watching them wind up the trail. He knows they're coming. Sleep, take your rest later on. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Guys, I believe if you were to read this text five, six, eight times by yourself at home and said, come up, what are the three main ideas we would all come up? This is not a hard one. This was not the hardest to interpret. It is very clear what the three main ideas are, and they permeate all through this text. Would you notice number one with me this morning? Jesus displays the importance of prayer. The importance of prayer just permeates Everything about this text. So let's talk about that a moment. Is prayer important? I want to propose to you three ideas right at the outset. You'll write the third one, okay? I'm going to have you write the third one. But just hear the first two. Here we go. Is prayer important? How do we see that in the text? Number one, I want you to imagine. You'd have to use your imagination because here in the United States, we've, we've always been free. But what if you had one more hour of freedom? One more hour of freedom. What would you do with it? I want to propose to you that by choosing to spend his last hour of freedom on earth, praying the Lord is impressing upon us, Grace View, prayer is important. So last hour, what are you going to do with it? I have to go over there and pray. After that, I'm going to become a captive. So while I'm free, I will use it to pray. That tells me prayer is important. Second thing, it's kind of subtle. It's already weeping into next week's text. Not next week's. Next week we're going to look at Easter, so we'll take a break from Matthew. But then the following week, Lord willing, we'll be back here. Second clue to us, notice, prayer was so important in the life of Jesus that Judas knows for a fact exactly where he will be and what he will be doing. He can confidently go to the chief priest and say, get your guys ready, tonight's the night. I know where he, how do you know? I know him, he goes to this place and he is going to be there and he will be praying. How in the world you can send a band of soldiers to arrest a man who is known to be praying and talking to God like that, you must be full of the devil and Judas was. But that's a clue. He is so faithful. It is such a regular part of his life. He'll be praying. I know where to find him. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write this one down. By insisting on getting alone. Remember, he goes a stone's throw further than he goes with Peter, James, and John. By insisting on getting alone to cry out to God when he's feeling this deep sorrow and grief, Jesus is showing us, Grace View, that the first response of trouble in our lives should be to pray. Should be to pray. You say, Jeff, when temptation and trouble and trial comes in my life and it hits me, I immediately, I start quoting scripture. That is awesome. 
And that should be right there. We should start praying scripture. Listen, here's what I'm saying. Prayer should not be second to anything when trouble hits. Guys, God has called the church to minister to each other. We're supposed to support and help. And that is a very real help. But nothing strengthens a Christian like a genuine encounter with God Almighty in prayer. I find that to be like, I'm not ready to say it is above the promises of the Word of God. It is not. But I'm telling you, in my life, it is not second. It is not second to anything. Prayer is crucial. Does your life reflect that prayer? The Lord is trying to show us prayer is crucial. I remember it was probably 20, I don't, I don't know the exact date. It was over 20 years ago. We were at a little church where we were serving up behind the jockey lot, and it was a Sunday afternoon. I think it was around this time of the year. My mom called. I don't remember how. I don't, maybe we had cell phones. I can't remember. But she got in touch with us. And I got on the phone, and we had not started our evening service yet, so it was probably like 4, 4.30, and we just kind of hung out together in the afternoon with several of our friends there at the church that were in ministry together. And my mom said, Jeff, uh, your Aunt Judy and their grandson, Brian, were on their way back from Florida. And they've had a bad car wreck on I-26 near Orangeburg. And the SUV they were in, they were going about 70 miles an hour, and something happened, and it rolled multiple times. And they've had to airlift them to Columbia. And she said, Dewey, and my Uncle Dewey, Judy's husband, was in Asheville. And so a couple, two or three, two and a half hours away, and said, do you think you might be able to intercept him and maybe help drive? He's heading that way. I said, well, what's his phone number? Let me give it a call. So I called and he answered, and I said, Dewey, yeah. I said, hey, this is Jeff down in South Carolina. Hey, bud. And I said, listen, uh, where are you at? And he said, I'm going about 90 miles an hour down I-26, headed to Columbia. I said, okay, yeah, I know. I said, Mama told me about Judy and Brian. I said, can I intercept you somewhere? At least let me drive. He said, no. Nah. He said, you're welcome to come. He said, I just need to get alone with my Lord. He said, I just need to be alone right now. I've got to talk to my Lord. See, Dewey didn't do that as some fabrication of some new idea. He automatically did that because that was his routine. He met with God on a regular basis. And when a massive trouble hit, his go-to was, I've got to get along with God, even if I'm going 90 miles an hour down I-26. We don't condone that, but that's what he was doing. And so we ended up meeting him down there at one of the hospitals. Write this thought down. Hey, Grace, I want you to be really strong spiritually. I want everyone here to be strong spiritually but your spiritual life will only be as strong as your prayer life. You can take that to the bank. You say, well, I know a lot of the Bible, and I've got a lot of verses memorized, and, and I live really strict, and I have my disciplines, and I, I, I check my, my reading every day, and I'm always faithful here at church. Guys, that is awesome. That's fantastic. And, and I give money, and I do this, that, and the other, and I look right and smell right and talk correctly. Wonderful. But if your prayer life is weak, you are a weak Christian. You will only be as strong spiritually as your prayer life is strong. One other last thought moving through this. How do we know that prayer is important? Jesus is calling his disciples to pray, but instead they're sleeping and they're going to pay a price. So while they should, he's agonizing in prayer, they should be praying. It was very clear what he was calling for. And yet, they're not praying. Before I finish that thought, I want to offer an idea. I want to confess to you what I'm about to say is not in the Scripture. It's a thought I have. It's an opinion that I have. This may not be true. 
But I believe there's a reason, verse 43 is talking about their eyes were so heavy. I can't say for sure, but I'm thinking, all right, if Satan has been paying any attention and he knows what's been happening and he's hearing the words of the Lord, and he's, we know he's always near what they're doing and he's tracking everything. He sees what's happening. And not that long ago, Jesus has said in two days. And so they know something massive is getting ready to happen this week. I personally wouldn't put it past Satan to summon every demon on the planet. I mean, every demon all around the world and summon them, you get to Jerusalem this week. In my mind, I'm imagining, again, may not be true, but I could envision a scenario where China has a little less demonic oppression for a few days, and Africa has less demonic oppression, and North and South America, and, and, and Australia, and all these places, because the demons are just condensed right there in the city of Jerusalem, and no doubt harassing the Lord and His disciples, but they are totally clueless, and that's why I think that night, it's more than just a full belly and a long week and a late night. I think they, it's like, again, like when you've woken up from a surgery. Those of us who've had surgery, and bless their hearts, some nurse is trying to talk to you, or some family member, and all you're just like, like, yeah, what's what's? It's just like cue balls are are hanging in your eye sockets. Like I can't stay awake. I can't fight it off, and you're just out. I think they are under great oppression this evening, this night. And so, what does the Lord do? Look at verse forty-one. Watch and pray. That you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Let's start with that second part of the text. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Guys, there's a principle there. This principle, on a very surfacey level, by the way, this principle is true for all of us. Your spirit is that highest part of your nature, and the flesh is not here talking about your skin. And your bones and muscle and tissues. It's not talking about that. It's talking about the lowest part of your being. So the highest part of your being may really believe and is very willing, but the lowest part makes it very difficult for that to happen. How many times have we thought, that's it? That is it. I am going to exercise. And I'm going to eat right. And you mean it. I mean, you mean it. The spirit is willing. But McDonald's is three quarters of a mile away. That's a big problem. And so the time I had allotted for exercise, I'm going to spend in the drive-thru, right? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Guys, listen to me. Verse 41, Jesus is talking to Peter. I have no doubt. Peter 100% meant everything he said in verse 31. They may all fall away. I will never. He meant that. He meant that. His spirit is willing. Verse 35, I will die for you. And he meant it. He wasn't lying purposely. He just wasn't telling the truth with what actually happened. His spirit was willing, but his flesh was weak. What chapter do you think of as we read that? What chapter in the Bible? What chapter do you think of? It's not on the screen. I'm going to read some verses out of there. Where? That's right, Victor. Romans chapter 7. Listen to verses 18. That's what Paul says. This is that principle. This is that law that Jesus is telling his disciples about as they're struggling to stay awake. Romans 7 verse 18. I'm just going to read quickly. Paul, the great apostle Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Again, not the skin, the lowest part of his being. For I have the desire to do what is right. Does this describe you? I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. 
Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. He's not making excuses. He's talking about this is real world. So I find it to be a law, not like the law of God, a principle. I find this principle, this law, the way things tend to happen, Paul writes. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members, his hands, his feet, his eyes, his ears, his mouth. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, another principle, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. That's this dynamic. Paul also brings it up in Galatians 5, this war that is within us. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And man, they were fighting it that night. I think one of the things that what they were missing that that evening is this. Were they under oppression? I think they were. But they're definitely getting ready to fall into a great temptation and they're not aware. Hey, listen, Christian, listen. We need to be aware. And I'm not saying read things into situations that aren't true, but we need to start realizing, I think I'm being attacked. I'm getting ready to go into a situation that is tempting for me. My pattern, my triggers, right? I, my, my rituals tend to lead me. This is a difficult thing I'm getting re- ready to go into. The Lord has just told them, for a matter of fact, this night you will all fall away. Watch and pray, and they're falling asleep. And that's why they're going to fall away. One last thought out of verse 41, because I'm going to offer it. I struggled. Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So what does that mean? Watch and pray. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. I'm going to offer that that could have two potential meanings. So I want to write both down because I think they're both true. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Grace for you? Pray that you may not enter into temptation. What does this mean? Number one. I think it very well could mean that prayer, and by prayer here I mean just general praying. Prayer helps to protect believers against powerful temptations. A praying Christian is a strong Christian. A non-praying Christian is a weak Christian. Just have a prayer life and you're going to be much stronger against powerful temptations. Just prayer in general. But I think also the Lord is talking about something in addition to that. Look at verse 41 again. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Did you hear the difference? So pray. Pray. So you won't enter into temptation. But this says, Jesus also saying, pray that you may not enter into temptation. So write this thought. We should pray specifically to be kept from temptation. Not only does a prayer life make us strong and helps, helps us have a defense against temptation, but we should, there's nothing wrong with this. In fact, there's everything right with this. In the Lord's model prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13, he taught us when you pray, literally ask the Lord to deliver you from evil. Father, don't lead me into a situation that is too powerful for me. Deliver me from evil. Lead me not into temptation. I think that's what the Lord's saying. Both pray 
and you'll be stronger. And when you feel temptation, pray, Lord, don't let me be delivered into that temptation. God, I'm being attacked. I pray that you will make me stronger than what is coming against me. Prayer dominates this whole chapter, this whole section. Number two. Number two, and this permeates the whole text as well. Jesus felt extreme sorrow. Jesus felt extreme sorrow. After you've written that, look again at verse 37, 38. Matthew writes, and taking with him Peter. Matthew wasn't in this group. Matthew's in the eight. But he knows what happened. Holy Spirit's inspired him to write. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. He began to be sorrowful, and he told the three, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Jesus felt extreme sorrow. Uh, it was January 18th, 15 months ago. That was a day that we knew was coming. Some of you already know what I'm talking about. My family should know what I'm talking about. Uh, we knew that Jonathan was going to go off to the Marines, and the date fluctuated a time or two, but we had a general idea, and it got put off a time or two. But ultimately, we knew this is coming, and then finally, this is the day, and that, that was the day. And I knew it was coming, and I didn't want to think about it, so I kept putting it off because it would make me sad when I would think about it, and then it would come up in my mind, and it hit again, and I'd push it out. Finally, we had an event over here at the Student Center, and some of you were there, and there was encouragement given to Jonathan, and we ended up praying over him, and some of you were there doing that. And it was about four or five weeks before he actually left, and Erica made a video, and of course had sad music in it, and there was all these things with Jonathan. I'm standing back there in the game room, and man, it just starts hitting me, and I've tried not to think about what's getting ready to happen, and I ended up getting emotional, and as I was speaking to some of you that night, I, I confess, man, this is going to be really tough for us. This is going to be tough for me. But we knew it was coming. But on that Monday morning, January 18th, he wanted to go to IHOP. So we went and got pancakes at IHOP. We went right around the corner up behind Brewster's. And we went to the recruiting office. And we went in and met with the two staff sergeants. And they gave us a rundown of exactly what's going to happen, this and this and this. And here's some paperwork. And we talked. And then we went outside. And then another young man, the other young man that was going that day, he went inside with his loved ones, and while they were meeting with them, we're saying our last goodbyes to Jonathan. They're on the sidewalk, and then Jonathan went back in, and they did the final with both guys. And when we went over in the car and just sat in the, in the, in the parking lot, man, it hit. I knew it was coming. I've known this day was coming. But, man, it hit like, a, like a, just a ton of bricks, just pow. And then when he came out, there was no more like, hey, another quick hug, watching him get in that car and drive off to Charlotte with the recruiter and the other young man. And it was just like, that was a bad day in my life. It was a bad day. I don't want to live that again. It was a day of great sorrow and grief. Jeff, why are you telling that? Jesus, at this point, has been announcing repeatedly exactly what is coming. But now it's here. Look again at verse 37. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful. So it's one thing. Jesus, Jesus himself has been saying, this is what's going to happen. Even down to the point he says, in two days. It's in two days. And now it's the two days later. He's been saying, he knows what's coming. But it's as though now 
after he's been focusing on pouring into his disciples so much, now he actually has time to solely focus on what he's getting ready to do, and sorrow just hits the Lord. Answer this question for me. Like, even answer out loud. Sorrow. Sorrow is a what? It's an emotion or a feeling. So I want to share this. It was pointed out by a counselor to Deanna and I just two or three weeks ago. And as soon as he turned and wanted to do a devotion out of Matthew 26, we both kind of chuckled like, hey, that's where I've been preaching forever. And he's going to bring a thought out of Matthew 26. And he ended up coming to this section. And I want to very briefly share his thought with you. Some of you are like me, and some of you ladies are like me, but uh, it's, some of you ladies are like me, but it's more of us guys. Praise the Lord, it's not all of you guys. Not all of you guys are like me. But like a lot of men, I was raised in a culture uh, there in western North Carolina, very blue collar, lots of hunting and fishing and construction work and, and country. That's how I was raised. Let's just say... We didn't sit around the dinner table and talk about our feelings. So how are you feeling? Well, tonight I'm feeling. We didn't do that. In fact, it was never stated, but it was caught by me. We don't talk about our feelings. We ignore our feelings. We ignore those. We stuff those if we need to. Just put them away. We don't want to think about that. And then I got called to preach. I felt like the Lord called me to preach at age 12. And so where my mind, my life started going is... Ideas, thoughts, doctrines, beliefs. Now, that's what's important. Beliefs and behavior. Right belief will lead to right behavior. And that's absolutely true. I believe in that. Philippians 4. Right belief, right behavior. That's what's key. But does that tell the whole story? It does not tell the whole story. He said, Jeff, what about feelings? I want you to write this thought down. We are not to be ruled by our feelings. And unfortunately, some people allow themselves to be ruled by wrong feelings. They feed the wrong feeling, and they just wallow in wrong feelings. So we are not to be ruled by our feelings, but feelings are important things. Why? Because our feelings reveal our heart. Our feelings reveal our hearts. I've been taught feelings are messages. They're messengers. Can I say it this way? Your feelings are indicators of your heart. It may say something good about your heart. It may say something bad about your heart. But your feelings, by the way, you feel before you think. You say, I've learned, man, I apply proper thought and proper doctrine. That is awesome, and that's what we have to do when our feelings are not correct. But you feel something before you think. What you're feeling is saying something about you. It's telling on your heart. Now hear me. Jesus has perfect belief. Jesus has perfect behavior. And Jesus has perfect feelings and emotions. And Jesus has strong feelings and strong emotions. And here's the key thought. Jesus is aware of his feelings and emotions. Very unlike me. I'm 52 And just really in the last year has this whole concept been brought to me. Again, we're not going to be ruled by our feelings. But if you just constantly, like I have done my whole life, that's been my paradigm. Just apply doctrine. Apply right thought until it just 
gets beat down and goes away. Okay, but you need to ask yourself, why am I feeling that way? This is important. Jesus is well aware of the condition of his soul because he knows his emotion and his feeling. He can state what it is. I am in deep sorrow. He is agonizing. He's in grief. Boy, next level. Again, I have to learn a whole new way. And I'm not good at this. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm not, I'm not even good to be aware of what my emotions are. Much less go to the next level like Jesus. Did you catch what he did? He didn't tell all 11, but he did tell his three closest friends. By the way, here's what's going on in my deepest unseen true human self. Here's what's going on. I'm very sorrowful even to death. I'm about to die. I feel like I'm dying right here in this garden. Will you be awake with me? This guy has a lot to learn from the Lord. Jesus is very sorrowful. I want to challenge Grace for you to perhaps some of you are already there, and I, I'm thankful for you being there, but many of you may be like where, where I have been most of my life. When we think of the sufferings of the Lord, we don't think about this scene. Our mind jumps to cat of nine tails, crown of thorns, hands and feet pierced, side pierced with a, a sword. That's where our mind goes when we think about the sufferings of the Lord. I hope by the end of today's message, by the end of this point, that we update our thinking so that we include. No, don't just include Gethsemane. I'm going to offer to you that Gethsemane should probably be put at the top of the list of the sufferings of Christ. Now, why would we say that? Why would we say this? When he says that he is very sorrowful to the point of death... I want you to think in your mind, again, this would probably be very difficult. You'd need a long time to do it. But if you were to go home and think, I'm going to think of, not to be morbid and to wallow in it, but I'm going to think of my worst emotional day, my worst physical day, my worst relational day, my worst financial day. I mean, put all of your worst together, roll it into one moment of time, and I promise you, you have not even begun to feel like the Lord is feeling here in the garden when he tells his three disciples, I'm very sorrowful, even at the point of death. I mean, he's about to die in the garden. His suffering all but killed him, all but killed him here. So his major grief and agony is taking place. Hold your spot here, if you would. Join me over in Hebrews five, the writer of Hebrews is apparently referring to this scene. I think it's very apparent that he's referring to Gethsemane when he writes Hebrews chapter five, the three verses we're going to read. Hebrews chapter five, look at verse number seven. So when we're thinking of the suffering of Christ, we need to be thinking about the garden of Gethsemane. The writer of Hebrews says in verse seven of chapter five, in the days of his flesh, talking about when Christ was on earth, in the days of his flesh, watch it. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Now watch this wording. With loud cries and tears. That's how Jesus was praying. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears. Who's he praying to? To him, he's offering loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. 
Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And obey him means put your faith and trust in him. It doesn't mean go out and keep a bunch of rules. All who obey him, he has become our savior. He has become the source of eternal salvation. Why? Because he learned obedience as the one and only begotten son of God. Why? Because even though he was offering up these prayers with strong crying and tears, crying out, hey guys, I want to propose to you that when Jesus went a stone's throw away and he begins this agonizing prayer, I mean pleading loud, I think all the other disciples, maybe the eight, but I'm quite confident the three could hear him over there and yet they still dozed off. I want you to picture for a moment, picture for a moment, Jesus in the garden falling on his face with loud cries and tears, begging God, please, Father, please, please. Weeping. If it's possible, please, over and over. He's gone for a long time. We have just quick little snapshots of what he's saying. And they're hearing this. He's begging and pleading with God. How urgently, if you're taking notes, write the following. Jesus in the garden has such agony of soul, such agony of soul, something's going on. And he prayed so fervently, I just gave you two thoughts. He has agony of soul coupled with such fervent, earnest, fiery prayer that Luke chapter 22, verse 44 speaks of him having, as it were, sweat like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus prayed so fervently. He has such agony of soul. He's sweating profusely. And the wording seems to indicate that the capillaries in his forehead have burst because he's under, he's under such intense agony and stress and sorrow. In other words... It's worse than anything you've ever experienced because there's not even a centimeter of comfort anywhere around him. Every part of him, beneath, above, this side, that side, front, rear, everything is just pressing upon him. And now he's bleeding in the garden and sweating. And it's a cold night. Last night was a cold night. Your window was frosted over if you looked out early in the morning. It's this time of the year. I pulled up Jerusalem's forecast this coming week. They're going to have some mornings in the 40s. How active and intense are you doing something if you're sweating in the middle of the night? So cold that Peter is going to be around a, a campfire with some other men trying to get warm. What's Jesus doing? Sweating and bleeding. You say, Jeff, okay, we got it, man. He's really under some agony, trouble turmoil, stress, sorrow, I mean like despair, there's no comfort anywhere, but you still haven't told us why. Verse 39, look at it quickly, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. It has something to do with this cup, this cup. So why is he in agony? You say, Jeff, I got the answer to that. He knows he's going to be on the cross tomorrow. He's going to be crucified. And he knows he's going to die in 15 hours. And before that, his last six hours, he knows he's going to be 
crucified and smothering to death. And before that, he'll be beaten. And nobody wants to live through all of that. And that's what he knows. Okay, let me just share something with you. Don't, don't, don't have that as your theology. You say, sure it is, Jeff. That's why he's agonizing in the garden. No, he's not agonizing in the garden because he's getting ready to get crucified. That's not it. That's not why. And listen, listen. Jesus knows where he will die. He knows when he will die. Remember, he's been saying all along, and he's even said in two days, and now it's that time. He knows where, when, he knows how he will die. He's been saying, I'm going to be crucified. And yet, what does he do? He stays in Jerusalem. We're talking about the bravest person who's ever lived. So he's not agonizing because he's going to be crucified. That's not what's happening here. Many of his followers through the last 2,000 years have become martyrs for Christ. And some of them have gone calmly, confidently, faithfully to the stake and been burned at the stake. Others have even been crucified like the Lord. They were crucified themselves. They did not have this. So does that mean Jesus is a coward and they're brave and he's just not quite as courageous as many of his followers? No, that's not the case at all. Something else is going on. It's not just, oh, I'm going to be crucified tomorrow and nobody, that's the worst way to die in the history of mankind and that's what's going to happen to me and he's ag- that's not it. You say, well, then what is it? Write this thought. Jesus was in extreme agony because though he was sinless, he became what despises him the most, which is what? He became what? He became sin. This is why he's agonizing. That's it. It's not just being crucified. It's what's going to go with that. What does he become while hanging on a cross? If you have your Bibles, after you've written that note, flip over with me if you would. I'm going to look at two quick passages. The first one's 1 Peter, chapter number 2. Let's kind of bear these thoughts. This is why he's agonizing. 1 Peter, chapter 2. Here's the context. As you're turning to 1 Peter 2, I'm going to read verse 18. It's not on the screen. This is the context. Peter writes to Christians, servants, here's, listening? hey, slaves, slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect. If you're a slave, be a good one. Subject yourself to your master and be respectful. Not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. I mean, I got the worst master in the whole realm. Okay, you be faithful and subject yourself to him and be respectful. Not just to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. Why? For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. This is a wonderful thing when a person, because of God, suffers unjustly. And it lets that happen, and yet they stay meek and mild and obedient in that. Now look at verse 24. Here's his example, the great example of one suffering unjustly. Peter says he, by the way, Peter was in the garden and he's talking about this night. He he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin. Why is he bearing our sins? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, this isn't fair, by his wounds ye have been healed. So for us to have spiritual healing, somebody's got to get wounded. It's Christ. 
That's not enough. Look at 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a verse that I use often. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, same concept, what we just wrote. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Paul writes, For our sake he, God the Father, made him to be sin who knew no sin. So catch this. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin. He became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For us to have righteousness, he's going to have to become sin. This was the plan of God. This is the cup. This, guys, here, here it is. The cup in, in Matthew chapter 26 refers to the wrath and the judgment of God against sin. And then this is what Jesus is not wanting to drink. He does not want to become sin. We don't understand this. We don't understand the sorrow that verse 21 of 2 Corinthians caused Jesus. For our sake, he made him. Do we read that very lightly? Here's why. Because we can't go one day without sinning. Our nature craves it. We love it. We're drawn to sin. But Jesus is a being, an eternal being. Think about it. Eternity. Go, go in your mind. Just keep going back. Eternity. Way back before anything was made. Through eternity. Keep on going. He's never committed one sin. We can't go one day. That's why we don't appreciate what we're talking about here. He, in his nature, despises sin more than you despise the idea of being put in a furnace of coal that is set on fire and burning to death. Your soul despises the concept of hell more than you despise you in hell. Jesus despises sin and becoming sin. It's as if he became sin. He committed all the sins of every person who ever lived, and now he's going to stand before God. This is what he doesn't want to do. I don't want to drink that. I don't want to do that. That's why he's struggling. I'm going to try to share a thought. Before I do, I want to make one other thing very clear. Nobody's making Jesus do this. Nobody. If you have your Bible open, just your chapter 26 of Matthew, look, glance over at verse 53. Just look at verse 53. Do you not think that I can appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of eight angels? Peter, put your sword up. Do you not know that I can at any moment ask my Father and He'll send more than 12 legions of angels? Nobody, John chapter 10, the Lord says, Jesus is saying, nobody's taking my life. I lay it down willingly. I want to make this clear. God the Father is not forcing Jesus to do something he doesn't want to do. That is not what's taking place. So what is taking place? I'm not going to be able to get this thought across, and I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it, but it hit me the other day in time to type it, apparently. So let's give it a shot. Y'all help me out. How and how long, how and how long does it take for a single person to drink the cup of God's wrath for their individual sins? How do they drink the cup of God's wrath for their individual sins? And how long does it take for them to drink the cup of God's wrath against their sin. 
How does it happen? Hell. How long does it take for them to drink the cup of God's wrath against their sin in hell? How long does it take? Eternity. You've got to get that. Hell. Hell. Torment. Forever. Why is Jesus in sorrow? Can I propose to you, and I don't, I don't have the vocabulary, I'm going to read what I've typed, but Jesus is in such sorrow because he knows that on the cross the next day, he would drink the equivalent of the combined cups of God's wrath for billions and billions and billions and billions of people. It is only as infinite God, as God's infinite Son, that Jesus is able to drink such a cup. Why? Because you mark it down. God's justice will not accept a partial payment. There will be no partial payment. If those people are not going to go to hell forever and ever, then what the price is paid for them has to be the equivalent of that. Billions and billions of people have put their faith and trust in Christ. And we will go to heaven because he tasted death Everyone's cup, I worded it this way, he knows he had to drink an eternity's worth of wrath for each person's sins. When I look at it that way, I do not, know, I do not minimize all the physical things that happened to Jesus around the cross, but I realize those don't even begin to tell the story. He despises sin. One last thought, we'll go to our final point. But he also despises the result of becoming sin. He hates this. He sees, he knows what's coming. He doesn't want to do it. The result of Jesus becoming man's sin on the cross, our sins put upon him, but he actually becomes sin. The result is that God the Father has to separate from his one and only son so that sure enough, in chapter 27, we'll get there eventually, verse 46, Jesus is going to cry out, my God, he's not going to call him Father at that time. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God has to forsake his son because he has become sin. We don't appreciate that. We don't understand. I, I remember working at the school and doing breezeway duty. And bless their hearts, these little four and five-year-olds, five year olds, first week of school. And they're finally, this is the first time they've ever been away from mom and daddy because they're going to half-day kindergarten. And you just have to pull them out of that car. And mama's crying and Little, little kids crying. I'm about to cry. <laughs> Thankfully, some of the other experienced teachers, <clears throat> Miss Bradley, is there like, no, no, get them, drive off, go, get away, we got them. And it's like, <laughs> like, but what about that? Get out of here, we know what we're doing. You're just making it worse. <laughs> Guys, for eternity, God and the Father are one. And he doesn't want anything to disrupt that. But he knows on the cross, you're going to hate me. You're going to hate me and you're going to leave me. Number three, this whole passage is permeated with the importance of prayer. It's permeated with Jesus' great sorrow. But this also shines clear. Jesus surrendered to God's will. If you don't get anything else, please get this. Jesus surrendered to God's will. I want you to look at one other verse. It might help if you actually, after you've written that, flip over just the next book, Mark 14. It's Mark's account of the same thing. Mark 14, would you flip over there? Mark 
I don't know if I'll be able to get this thought across or not. The Lord showed me some things this week in this chapter, so I'm very thankful for that. I feel very, very limited in getting these thoughts across. Mark 14, I'm going to read 35, 36 will be on the screen. If you have your Bible, look at verse 35. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Now watch 36. And he said, Abba, we know that that's somewhat of an equivalent of our word, Daddy. Picture Jesus on his face with loud crying and tears, calling out loudly. And he said, Abba, Daddy, Father, all things are possible for you. Did you catch that? If anybody knows God, it's Jesus. So Jesus says, Father, all things are possible for you. You could do anything. I read that and I'm like, wait a minute. This changes everything. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. All things, you can do this. Remove it. I don't want to drink it. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Guys, listen. See, Jesus knows God is omnipotent, omnipotent, all power. But more than just all the power there is, he has all the power ever needed. Listen to me. God can do. God Almighty can do. He's the Almighty. He can do anything. Anything. But does that phrase tell the whole story? So then can he make a rock so big that even he can't lift it? What? That's stupid. You said he could do anything. Okay, okay. For your sake, we'll add to what we mean when we talk about God's omnipotence. Can he make sin not be sinful anymore? He can do anything. Okay, smart Alec. I want to smack you. Help me out. Finish my sentence. Y'all help me finish with two words. God can do anything. He wills. God can do anything he wants. So the key is, what does he want to do? Because he does what he wants. He can do anything he wills. If you're taking notes, let's quickly write this thought. Jesus knows God is omnipotent. And the, so you have all this infinite power. The only thing that governs, controls God's omnipotence, I mean the only thing that controls God's omnipotence is his will. His will controls and governs his omnipotence. How's it going to be used? However, he wills it to be used. Oh, but there's more. His will governs his omnipotence, but his will is also governed by his nature. God's nature, his attributes, his character governs what he wants to do. And what he wants to do is how he uses infinite power. Why is that important? Here's the last part of your note. God's just nature 
demanded that a satisfactory payment had to be made against sin before he could forgive any sin. So now I read it with that in mind, and that's true theology. Jesus says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. You can do anything you want to do. So hold on, Jeff. Time out. Time out, Jeff. Does this mean that God has the power, the authority to let sinners go to heaven without Jesus dying? Yes. Who's going to tell God what he can't do? God makes the rules. God can do anything he wants to do. So then why didn't he do that? Here's the problem. His just nature would not let him let sinners into heaven. That would be torment to him. He cannot bear and tolerate sin. He can't just overlook sin. Sin has to be punished. And so God has determined there has to be a payment for sin. And that's where Jesus Christ comes into play. So what's going on here, guys, in Matthew 26, as we make our way back over there quickly... This is not a case of Jesus resisting the Father's will. This is just a case of Jesus, this man, the man, Jesus, asking the Father, is there any other way to accomplish salvation that satisfies your nature other than me dying this death and drinking this cup? Third time I'm going to say it. I'm not going to be able to get this across I have a large quote I'm about to read you. It's far and away the best one that helped me this week, and it's by R.C. Sproul. It's a long quote, so you're going to have to pay attention. What's going on here in the garden? It's a long one, so really lock in. Sproul writes, Jesus was crying, Oh, Father, picture it, picture it. Go there in your mind. Jesus is on his face. Sproul writes, Jesus was crying, Oh, Father, is there any other way? I'll go to the cross. I'll lay down my life. I'll pour out my blood. I can handle the cross. I can take the wrath of the Romans. I can take the wrath of the leaders of the Sanhedrin. But do I have to be utterly exposed to your unmitigated wrath against the sin of your people? I can take that. Crucifixion, I can do that. But do I have to be utterly exposed to your unmitigated, unmixed wrath against the sin of your people? That's the struggle. There's a war going on. And Sproul continues, but Jesus was not finished. He prayed, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Sproul writes, he was saying this, Father, with every fiber in my being, I shrink away from that cup. I do not want to drink that. Did you catch it? Father, with every fiber in my being, I shrink away from that cup. I do not want to drink it. I do not want to drink it. But there is one thing that would be even worse, and that would be to fail to do your will. 
if it is your will that I drink this cup, if there is no other way to do it, then give me the cup and I'll drink it to the last drop. And later Sproul says, if you are a Christian, your sins were in that cup. Your sins, mine, were in that cup. And he drank it to the last drop. Verse number 39, if it means anything, it means this. Jesus, first and foremost, loyalty above everything, is God's will over his own. It's as though, guys, this is how you pray. We talked about prayer earlier. Let's circle back. This is how you pray. Jesus just showed us. You come to God Almighty and you say, God, this is what I want. This, is, this right here, this is what I want. But I do not want what I want more than what you want. This is what I want. I really love it. But I do not want what I want more than what you want. That's Jesus. Loyal to the Father's will. Quickly look at verse 42. So the whole thought in this third point is Jesus surrenders to God's will. Notice verse 42. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass, that's slightly different than verse 39. 39 says it's very positive. There's a request. If it's possible, take this cup away. Verse 42 seems almost resigned as if Jesus already is picking up. His request is not going to be granted. Verse 42, My father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. R.T. France also helped me. Not as good as the other one, but a good quote. France says, from this point, ladies and gentlemen, from the garden, from this point on, there will be no further indication of reluctance on Jesus' part to fulfill his God-given role. There will be no further reluctance on Jesus' part. What does he mean? He gives two examples. Number one, he will not resist arrest. He's already settled. I'm going to do it. He will not resist arrest, even though he could easily have done so. And number two, and at his trials, he will offer no defense. He's just going to sit quiet. Hey, if anybody ever just botches up a prosecution... It's this gang of the Sanhedrin. They are going to botch this prosecution against Jesus. They're going to come up. Man, they've got witnesses. All, at any point, all Jesus has to do, yeah, your witnesses just contradicted each other. This is a farce. I'm not standing for this. You can't do that to me. All he had to do at any point is claim his rights, and he just sits there silently. Why? Because he is now resigned. He's going to let it happen. So he's made this request, if it is possible... But his request is not granted. So what does that tell us? This didn't hit me until this morning, I think. We typed this note out the other day and not even realizing it has more truth than I realized when I typed it. Write this down. That the Father did not grant Jesus' request shows there was no other way to appease his wrath against our sin except by Jesus' sin-bearing death on the cross. That's what that shows. Hey, he made, Jesus gets all of his prayer requests answered, right? All but one. Jesus gets all of his prayer requests except one answered. This is the only one he doesn't get answered. Why? 
Because the Father not granting this request shows there's no other way. You want to know if it's possible. There is no other way to appease God's wrath against our sin except by Jesus' sin-bearing death. It's not just Jesus' death. Jesus' death doesn't pay for our sin. It's only if Jesus' death is a sin bearer. That's the part he didn't want. But it had to be a sin bearer. Got to put it all on him. I'm going to put it all on you, son. I'm going to pour my wrath. They're going to see the physical stuff. They are not going to see what I am doing to you. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It had to be a sin-bearing death. But he yielded. Let's finish with 45 and 46. And it's brief. So after going away three times and praying three times, he comes back the third time. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Can I paraphrase that? Rise, let us be going. See that? Let us be going. Let's shorten that. How can we shorten that? Let us be going. Let's go. (laughs) I like that. They've been sleeping. He's been agonizing in prayer. He he rises surrendered and victorious. Let's go. They're about to lose. All of them are going to lose and fall prey to the temptation that's coming. Listen, they've blown it. They had a window of time. They could have been preparing. They chose to sleep. It's too late. They're going to fall. And they're going to, this is going to be the worst failure of their lives since they've been following the Lord. This is going to be it. They're getting ready to have the worst failure. Why? They weren't praying. Jesus has been agonizing in prayer, and he won. You say, but he's going to get crucified. Oh, he won. You remember 1 Peter 2.24? Through him, eternal life for all of those who obey him. He's the source of eternal life. We sing about him today. We sing to him and of him. We lift him up, and, for, and we're just getting started. There is a generation, and there's going to be a throng of people all around the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will be made much of. Why? Because he won the battle by surrendering to God's will. He won. They lost. They slept. Now, listen to me. Grace View, I am not saying in any way don't invest in your physical well-being. I'm not saying don't invest in your financial well-being, your relational well-being, and your career advancement. I am not saying that at all. But if you spend all your time and energy investing in your career and your physical body, and your finances, and all your earthly relationships to the neglect of your spirit, you are going to lose when the temptation comes. You will lose. And some of you are like, that's me. I lose all the time. I am a true Christian, but temptation comes, and I just fold like a cheap tent. I mean, I just can't stand up. It's because you've been investing in all these other things and not been investing in your soul, in prayer, in time, in the Word of God. They lost. He won. Verse 46. Wake up, guys. Let's go. He don't even let Judas get all the way to him. He goes to Judas. I'm so ready to do the will of God. I'm going to meet you. And our last thoughts, where I'll close. All Christians have times when we struggle with God's will. All Christians have times when we struggle with God's will. We all do. Jesus You say, Jeff, I don't think I ever struggle with God's will. You just don't know it. You're so full of doing what you want to do, you don't even realize you're not doing what God wants to do. Anybody who's doing God's will knows there are those times, man, it's not easy, it's a battle. 
You've had a point in your life. Let's finish the thought. All Christians have times when we struggle with God's will, but how we respond when God's will is not our will, well, that's going to determine the quality of our life on this, in this life and also through eternity. How you respond when God's will is not your will. We love this. Oh, I love when my will and God's will is one and the same. Yeah, me too. That's easy. That's nice. But what about when God's will is over here and your will is over here? He's after total surrender, Grace View. If we learn nothing else, we learn this. Jesus has taught us prayer is crucial. He taught us this. He felt great sorrow because he became sin for us, and yet he yielded to God's will. He won by total surrender. So I want to ask you this morning, as I'm closing, is there any aspect of God's revealed will or God's providential will in your life that you need to agonize and get on your knees and get on your face before God. It may take more than one time, but you're like God's revealed will and God's providential will. It's so clear this is what he wants. This is what's going to happen. And I've been bucking it. I've been resisting it. Do you just need to get alone and identify it and get to the point and just hang in there and keep saying, Lord, this is what I want. But if what I want is not what you want, I want what you want and I'm surrendering to it. Is there any area of your life that you need to get to that point? Is there anybody here, you've been after the Lord over and over and over about some chronic pain or illness, and you have begged and pleaded, and God providentially has not taken that from you, and you have turned angry and bitter at God. Is it time to just say, Lord, this is what I want, but I want what you want more than what I want? Is it time? Is there anybody this morning, not mama called, not preacher called, not pastor called, but it is clear as day God has been leading you to move toward full-time vocational ministry, not just doing some ministry and volunteering, but it is full-time vocational ministry, and you're like, I don't want to do it. Is it time for you to just say, i got to get along with God to the point to where it's like, God, you're in charge and I'm not. I yield to you. Is there anyone here this morning that you've been struggling with God's will for your children because it's not your will for your children and it's time to just get along with God and say, Lord, this is what I want, but I want what you want more than what I want. Is it time for someone here this morning to honor God's revealed will and God's call to honor the sanctity of your marriage vows. When in your heart, you come to the Lord and say, this is what I want. I want this, God. And God says, I want this. Is it time for you to stop insisting on what I want and say, Lord, I'm going to do what you want? Despite the other person, I will do what you want. I am going to obey you. Your will is my will. Is it time for anyone here? God's plan for your finances has not been your plan for your finances. And it's time for you to say, God, I've read it enough. I hear it enough. It comes up over and over. Mine is yours. I'm taking my hands off. It's all yours. You do what you want. I'm going to start honoring you with my finances. And is there anybody in here? It's like there's an area of service. There's an area of service. And honestly, there he goes again. I don't want to do it, Jeff. Okay. 
You don't answer to me. You'll answer to him. Is it time to go to the Lord? Lord, you know I don't want to do that, but is it time to say, God, you just keep on bringing it back. I will do what you want me to do. Is there a decision that you need to make and yield to that is God's will, but it is not your will and it's time? Be like Christ. He won. You will win and I will win when we surrender wholeheartedly, unconditionally to the will of God. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Heads bowed, eyes closed. So I've got to ask, are you right now, this moment, fully surrendered to God's will? If he were to tell you to do something, is your heart such that you could honestly say, Lord, I will do it. Make it clear. I don't want an impression that I envision in my mind and dream up and talk myself into. But God, if you make it clear what your will is for my life, I will do it. I will do it. Is that your heart? That's how we're successful. Jesus gave us the blueprint. It was agonizing. It wasn't his will. His will was for the cup to pass by. But he ultimately arrived at doing the Father's will. And he drank the bitter cup. And oh, what agony in the garden. Christians, just before I pray, can I ask just a couple other questions? Here's one we need to consider. Hey, how aware are you of your soul's condition? If I ask you right now, right now, what is one or two, maybe three words that describe your heart? I'm talking about feelings. Say it in your head. Don't say it out loud. You say, right now, Jeff, today, I am. Put word to it. What, what describes your soul? What describes your emotion? What are the dominant things coming to your mind? Can you honestly say, wow, I'm thankful. Or maybe you're thinking, I'm grateful. Or maybe you're, I'm confused. Or maybe you're, I'm afraid. You're not talking to me, you're talking to God. Maybe you just need to tell God, Lord, let's just be honest. In my true inner self, I'm afraid right now. I'm very fearful. Others, just be honest. God knows, by the way, you need to get on board and realize he sees it anyway. Go ahead and confess it and become aware of where you're at. Don't say to me, but be honest with yourself. Is there anyone here that you just have to say, me? I'm bitter. I'm bitter. I'm angry. I have hatred. Anyone in here, this would be you. I am so jealous. I am envious. Would any, in all honesty, just have to say, I have so much peace. What a gift. My heart is filled with joy and peace. I have love. I love God right now. Where are you at? Be aware. And, oh, Christian, how important is prayer to you? It should be crucial. Your spiritual life will only be as strong as your prayer life. Invest in your prayer life before it's too late. The time of trouble and temptation is coming. You have a window right now to be investing in your spiritual self. And prayer is a massive part of that. Would you stand with me this morning? Father, 
Father, would, all, would you cause all of the brothers and sisters that have believed in Jesus right now, would you cause us all just to bring you into our sphere of awareness? And Lord, we're going to all agree together right now, talking to you. Thank you for giving your son to bear our sins in his body on the tree. Thank you. And Jesus, Jesus, we're all going to talk to you for a moment. We at Graceview right now this morning are impressed. We've had impressed upon us the sacrifice and the sorrow that you took for us. We thank you for making the decision to fulfill the Father's plan and to be our sin bearer and to drink the whole cup that included all of our eternal cup of wrath for our individual sins. Thank you that you drank it all, mine and hers and hers and his and his and billions of our brothers and sisters throughout time. We praise you and we lift you up high. In your name, we ask it all. Amen. Amen. Next Sunday is Easter. Amen. Let's come ready to serve and worship the Lord next Sunday at Easter. Thank you for coming.